0: Welcome back to Break Check, your source for automotive knowledge at the Northwest School. Today, we're going to be talking about project cars as well as a couple questions we have from our listeners that relate to gas and the difference between turbochargers and superchargers. Lewis, do you want to start us off?
1: Thanks, Merrick. And thank you to everyone who's tuning back. Welcome to episode three for the Break Check podcast. Uh, my name's Lewis. I'm one of your co founders and hosts. I'm joined by Seiji. And Merrick, so we have the whole squad together this week, which is pretty cool. Um starting off, we're gonna focus on project cars. A project car that I am obsessed with or a car that I would really want. Um and for those well, of you who
2: Lewis, whether, let me can I yeah. just say Go for can it. Can you explain what a project car is for the viewers that are listeners that don't know?
1: That's a good I know I've been getting ahead of myself. Um as you can tell, we're really excited. I've been tired this week, so having this podcast has been cool, but for those of you that don't know what a project car is, it's a car, or at least the way, the way I see it is, it's a vehicle that is, would typically be seen as unattainable, um, but due to a, cert, a certain condition or if it needs mechanical uh, things or <laughs> needs maintenance or just a replacement parts, it's a vehicle that you would typically work on and create a pristine vehicle from that. So turning a broken down car into a, an amazing car um people or do this. Just, yeah
2: or just taking like any kind of car that you can usually you get it for pretty cheap to start with because either it's a low end car or it has mechanical issues but you over time build it up to a final build that you want it to be
1: right that's how and, i would describe it that's a good yeah that's a good way to describe it too i think um People sometimes do, they'll go to junkyards to get parts on certain cars. Uh, There's a YouTuber named Chris Fix, shout out Chris Fix. He always, uh, he had a Jaguar that he had had as a project car and he actually went to a junkyard, got a total version of that car and took parts off of that that were good and put it on his project car. Um, Before we shift gears here, I know American Sagey, this is their expertise, so I'm going to shift it to them soon. My project car, a car that I would want, would be an Audi Sport Q5 So it has a V6, it's the Q5 model, which a lot of people are familiar. So it's a SUV slash crossover has around 330 horsepower. Uh, The car, it'd be around like 2014, 2012. And I would want to get it through a site called Copart. And so what Copart is, is Copart's an auction site for used cars that have certain flaws. Um, They're given a rebuilt title. I would try and find a Sport Q5 with a uh, with hail damage or with structural damage. So it was told about, oh, by an insurance company, I'm intentionally involved in a insurance settlement after an accident, but sport, you thought that'd be amazing for me or a Jeep Grand Cherokee SRT, which is the 6.4 liter V8 Cherokee that makes 475 horsepower. Both of those cars are incredibly fast and I do a lot of skiing. So that's why I'd want one of those two cars. Um, Merrick, Seiji, I know you guys are both (laughs) bursting with excitement. So who wants to start? What are we going to, who, uh, who has the best product?
2: I'll just say, um, quickly, all Merrick hasn't talked in a while. I'll let him talk after this, but, um, you were saying how an Audi S Q5 or sport Q5 would be something that you would like. Um, I'm not sure about the ones older than this, but my family is currently leasing. A 2019 model and um the it's it's really nice it's really luxurious and my dad says it's really fun to drive um obviously being my age I can't drive it yet but it sounds really nice v6 turbo um but I'll let Merrick talk now
0: Yeah, you know, SQ5 is a relatively newer car, um, and I'd like something that's older. Um, I'm fascinated by 1960s Mercedes and just cars from the 60s in general. So for me, um, an older car is a lot more simple because there's a lot less modern technology involved with them. So, it's really easy to kind of see the roots and kind of the founding factors of what a car really is. So, I think that if I was able to find like a scrapped, maybe 300D Mercedes from the 1960s, I could really understand what goes into making that car, kind of make it a final product and have this really cool classic to cruise around in. Another newer car that I'd be interested in is like a 1997 Mazda RX7. You can find an older one of those. Those have a rotary engine. So, it's really cool an interesting engine for me. And I love to. Fix that up, and make a really cool build out of it.
1: The RX seven because you have the MX five Miata. What's an RX seven again? I should know this. So, <laughs> but what it describe it for us? Stacey,
0: you can take that. You know, for your
1: while well.
2: Um. So it was their take at um what was starting to get very popular among Japanese car manufacturers around the eighties and nineties of. Front engine, rear wheel drive, um, sports cars. Um, And so the thing that made this stand out, other than the styling from the other ones, was that it did not have a typical engine with pistons. It had a rotary engine. I don't know exactly how that works, but um, it like...
1: Is that kind of like a Boxster engine where it's... Mounted horizontally instead of you know, kind of. The it is tradition.
2: not. It it does not even have pistons at all.
1: Oh. Okay. So.
0: So it's got like three. Usually it's a three rotor or a two rotor, and they're little. You can. I imagine believe the
2: motors. I believe the RX sevens were two rotors.
0: Two rotors. Yeah. You can imagine it as little like triangles. A lot of people who work on these engines relate them to Doritos and how it works is they're in kind of like a oval oval, square shaped chamber and the triangle makes it so there's three different combustion chambers. So as it rotates around, the there's certain like inlets and outlets in each chamber, each part of the, the chamber that it's in, that um, ignite a spark as the one side of the triangle rolls over it. So that there's like, you can think of it as three different explosions on one piston and that's kind of how it's driven around. It's Got it. are commonly used on airplanes. You can think of it as an airplane engine.
1: Oh, that's pretty sweet. That's some interesting technology there. So we have a Mazda RX-7, Audi Sport Q5, Merrick's, I guess, transitioning and that from... <laughs> that sounds weird when I think of it. But, um, He has an Audi A3 wagon, so he's in a sense, an Audi fan. It's a car that his parents are letting him drive, but he likes Mazdas. I don't have any Japanese cars in the family or cars that are um, non-European or non-American, but I'm more biased towards European stuff. Seiji, what about you?
2: Um. Well, I will just say, I know Merrick has told me his favorite car brand is Mercedes. Um, but I really like Japanese cars, especially ones from the nineties. And my one of my dream project cars would be um like a a 90s Nissan 240 SX.
0: Um
2: uh, ideally it would be the version that was only made for Japan called either the 180SX or the Silvia, but those are much harder to get. And they've usually been um, a little beaten up from drifting, Mm -hmm. but not always. Um, So that would be my ultimate dream project car. Um, But those are a little hard to find. Another one that is also a little bit hard to find, but probably not as hard to find. Um, 1993 Nissan Sentra S-E-R. So, it has the non-turbo version of the engine from the Nissan Silvia, my dream car. But oh, it's front-wheel drive. Nissan um,
1: uh, what was it? S-E-R. Nissan
2: Sentra, S-E-R. But look up either 1993 or B13. B13 was that generation of it. Oh, I um, see.
1: Cool. Um,
2: fun funny. fact, my dad actually owned one of those. But... I really love those.
1: No, they look—they uh, look pretty spy. Kind of reminds me of the Audi Quattro equivalent. It looks like this one has a 1.6 liter four cylinder. Um,
2: the regular version does have a 1.6, or maybe you're looking at a different generation. But the Ser from the generation that I like, which is B13, so 1991 to 1993, okay. had um, a 2.0 liter inline-four. Uh, it's one of the most famous engines ever produced by Nissan, known as the SR20 from the SR engine family. Um, Got it. Or SR20DE is the full name.
0: Very very famous drifting engine. I know the DET, the turbo one, is very common as well for drifting.
2: Yes, um, it's a popular engine to either swap into drift cars or... They're, drift car, they're very popular cars for drifting that come with an SR20 DET.
1: That's pretty funny you mention that, because the first thing I typed in, I typed in Nissan Sentra SR20 DET. Boom, Nissan Forms, and it talks about uh, it's doing an engine swap with the SR20 DET. And so I can definitely see there that it's uh, considered a popular engine um, and one that's well-respected. Nissan these days has been kind of a little more... Sad with certain stuff. I think they're waiting on the new Nissan GTR, but some of those older heritage models kind of Godzilla or the GTR when it first came out or the SR20 uh DET Sentra, those are just amazing vehicles. Good stuff there. <laughs>
0: yeah, I definitely agree with you, Lewis. Nissan has really been focusing on kind of commercial vehicles. And in the 90s, they were really known for performance cars, definitely in Japan. They the whole GTR line. Which was really, they managed to have three different, four different generations of the GTR and it still kept that same idea of like a very fast performance car that's good on the mountain road and really competitive on the racetrack as well. So well, it's really sad to see that they're not really focusing on that much. on that Yeah, much now.
2: I will actually, I will actually correct you that there were more than four generations of the GTR. There was um, there was a couple that were made, uh, they might have been under the uh, manufacturer name of Dotson. Um, and then there was um, so I don't know what the generations are called from around then, but then there was R31, which they technically did not make a GTR of but it was in the skyline family which is what the 90s GTRs were and then there was R32, R33 and R34 which are very famous um GTR models but they made they're they're very famous as the um uh, all wheel drive coupe um sports car but they also made four door versions uh, and they made rear wheel drive versions, and then now they're
1: quite a few stuff. Like they did the Skyline GTR, remember, which was right hand drive. <laughs> we're on Squadcast right now. Merrick just—it's uh, a podcast platform—but Merrick shows us he had the GTR logo. Oh, it says AirPods case. Okay, that's cool. Um, but yeah, a lot of Grand Turismo racers—that's what GTR means. And Sagey's right; they've had coupes, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive, and also some like bigger versions, but. Go on, go on, Seiji.
2: And yeah, they they continued that Skyline family for a long time since like the '70s or something, maybe even the '60s, all the way until the present. Currently, they're not making any. They make GTRs for the U.S., but they don't make any Skyline cars for the U.S. They the most recent Skyline car they made for the U.S. was the um, it's the well, technically it's not a Nissan. It's a Infinity G37, I think, but in Japan it was sold as a Nissan and they're currently making a hybrid version of that car in Japan sold as a Skyline. So
1: Infinity G37. Oh yeah, I've seen yeah, a uh, little mm-hmm.
2: It it's like a, a slightly bigger Nissan 370Z yeah. with different styling.
1: These are actually quite popular. I see a lot of um, a lot of drifting peeps, <laughs> drifting people drive these cars around. Um, little hot hatches,
0: yeah, G37s are very popular with the drifting community as well. It's just like stance and kind of JDM Japanese style car community as well.
1: Stannis Nation, Stradman always says Girth Nation. Have yourself a wonderful day. But I think if you have a G37, you kinda you can do a wide body kit, you can do a whole bunch of stuff with that. Um it's kind of funny how Japanese cars, I find them I found that they're modded more than most European cars. Um, whether that's like Honda's or that's just kind of an interesting trend that at least I've seen throughout my lifetime, uh, all of 18 years. So <laughs> don't don't have much going on there. Um, now we're gonna start to shift gears here, moving towards <laughs> shift gears. Okay, <laughs> that was bad. Um, <laughs> we're we're pretty uh-huh. tired, so we're gonna we're gonna move on. Um, frequently asked questions. Uh, I'm gonna start the first one here, and then kind of shift over to allow Merrick and Seiji to take the lead on the, the next ones. Um, one frequently asked question is should I put synthetic oil or conventional oil in my vehicle? And for those of you that don't know, synthetic blend oil or just straight synthetic oil um, is oil that typically lasts between five and 10,000 miles on a given oil change. And regular oil or conventional oil lasts anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 miles. I will always stand by putting synthetic fuel in your vehicle, because when you look at the viscosity of the oil, it'll just serve you so much better in the winter months, and it's meant to uh, withstand higher temperatures and for a longer amount of time. Um, just looking at the definition for synthetic, it's, uh, it's well, at least uh, Google says it's made by chemical synthesis, especially to imitate a natural prod- product. Um I guess synthetic implies that it's man-made but with oil kind of synthetic oil is just of the highest quality that's how i would consider it um when you're buying oil make sure you get full synthetic and not synthetic blend because synthetic blend is a mix between conventional and synthetic but for example this is kind of for those of you listening who really pay attention to uh how much it will cost you maintain your car um if you go to jiffy lube and you do a conventional oil change It's around 45 bucks. And then synthetic oil will be around 70 or $75. So if you're getting twice the amount of time on a synthetic oil change, 10,000 miles, and it costs you $70 versus 45, uh, it'll cost $90 to get 10,000 miles out of your vehicle. But with a synthetic oil change, it'll cost 70 to 75 for um, the same amount of mileage. So your car is going to run better. Uh, higher oil quality by all means put synthetic oil in your vehicle if you're able to um
2: you want to move on to the next question yeah Um, i think it's what is the difference between a turbocharger and a
0: supercharger
1: dun 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 yeah (laughs) when i think
0: so Turbochargers and superchargers are both forms of what we call forced induction. And that's where it's a mechanism that forces air into the engine to make it run cooler. Therefore, you can get more output out of the engine. So these are usually on performance cars. Um, originally, turbochargers were kind of the first. Well, superchargers actually came first, actually, in the 1920s. A lot of the cars. That there there's very few cars but the very the most expensive cars came with superchargers. And then kind of in the early like seventies and eighties we started seeing turbochargers coming up on like sport versions of cars and now they're very common. You buy like a mini or an Audi base trim will come with a turbocharger. Um almost all of Mercedes lineup is turbocharged. Um but really the main difference between them is the supercharger is connected to the engine. So when you when the camshaft rotates on the engine that also rotates a pulley that's connected to the supercharger. So as the engine RPM gets higher, the supercharger turns faster, therefore pushing more air into the engine. And Supercharger is usually two corkscrews that feed air towards the engine. That's how it works. A turbocharger, hence the name turbo, that means turbine. So there's a little turbine that is driven by the exhaust fumes. And then that air is then kind of compressed and then forced back into the engine to create a kind of a push of air into it. So they're both feeding air into it just in slightly different ways. And they make different noises as well. A lot of
1: people love the noises that they make. So, yeah. Servochargers have that kind of blow-off valve noise where it's like... But then with the supercharger <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. pretty funny yeah no Sagey, had that one spot on um kind of the new hellcat motors have that beautiful supercharger noise and it's kind of weird uh merrick they have a xd90 and volvo is kind of new with the ter- turbocharged and supercharged engine so the supercharger is for the lower end lower rpms so when your engine isn't revved as high so it's instant instantaneous torque and then turbochargers will Take over at the higher RPMs. Um,
2: when when an engine is, um, for those of you who don't know, when it has both a supercharger and a turbocharger, it's called twin charged.
1: Boom. And then what's who knows with the compressor thing? I feel like a <laughs> go for it. Yeah, the compressor is what Mercedes calls supercharger. That's right, and they do it with a K as in yeah, like kind of a
2: And there, I think there's an umlaut over the O. I don't
1: know. Yeah a little uh, hmm (laughs) i can't think of jokes but i don't really understand the whole i guess it's germans they like to be a little bit different than everyone else with the starting off with a but there you go you got to differentiate differentiate yourself somehow Um, yeah um and then with the
0: super with turbochargers you get this thing called turbo lag so a turbocharger only has like a certain amount of air that it can take out before it needs to let all the air out and again get gain more compression. And when you let off the gas as well, the air will deposit. And that's where you get that turbo flutter noise that everyone loves. And Mercedes has found a way around this lag where you have to wait for it to spool up where they have this thing called bi-turbo. So a lot of cars have twin turbos, so it's two identical turbos. It's basically twice the turbo power because you have two of them. But a bi-turbo is where you have one tiny little turbo that spools up really quickly. And so when you step on the gas on the Mercedes, that tiny turbo will rev up instantly and then force air into the engine. But that's not a lot of power. So as that's forcing a little bit of air in the big turbo, spools up and then gives you that giant linear push of power. So you don't really feel much lag in a Mercedes because of that, where in a BMW only has one turbo, so you might feel that lag a little bit more because you gotta wait for it to to kind of spool up.
2: And I don't know exactly how it works, but um rally cars have an anti-turbo lag system. That's why there's that's one of the reasons why there's so many crazy noises from rally cars. And um, also, people, we've been talking about how um, turbochargers, the blow off valve, like makes a noise, but um, superchargers also make a, a signature noise. They have like a whine when you have your foot on the throttle.
1: Yeah, very true. Um, superchargers and turbochargers are kind of like the darling of the auto industry. If you, we were in Colorado, or I was in Colorado the other day um, for ski training, so the past week, and we, our rental car was a Mitsubishi Outlander Sport. It was a $22,000 two-row SUV with five seats, and it only had 148 horsepower, which wasn't that much, Um, but if you look at a Subaru, Subaru has their new 2.4 liter turbocharged engine, and it's uh, 0.4 liters larger, so the displacement... It's it's not that much bigger in a sense, but um, it has so much more horsepower. It has 260 horsepower, and horsepower's power. So the more horsepower, chances are the faster you'll go. Better horsepower, better torque, better uh, numbers. And this Mitsubishi was so slow, but if only it had a turbocharger, it would have been a lot faster. Um, yeah, great stuff there with turbochargers and superchargers. <laughs> Um, shifting gears, we have question number two, or I guess we're on three I can't count. It's been a long, long day. Um, question three, one of the questions, uh, it's embarrassing. I'm trying to find it here. Essentially the question asked, should you get the more expensive gas? So if you're given the option of going to a shell station or some random, no one knows name brand um, in the middle of nowhere. If you have the two stations, which ones should you do? Well, there's a lot of things I'll factor in that in terms of price, but this is kind of a Lewis system for what I do. Um, so my car, I filled up 18.9 gallons today at Costco, and our current price of gas as of um, November 12th, it was 249 And for 87 octane gas, which is what my car takes, so that came to forty seven dollars and sixty one cents, and the Chevron in my neighborhood, uh, a gallon of gas was three dollars and ten cents. So if I had filled up there, it would have been fifty eight fifty nine, and so fifty eight fifty nine minus forty seven, um, or basically, I would have saved twelve. I saved twelve dollars by going to Costco and filling up there, and so while the Chevron gas is a little bit higher quality, what I like to do is I like to split the difference. And kind of another one of the darlings of the auto industry is Seafoam, and so what Seafoam does is it's a fuel additive or, or kind of a lubricant, um, and it will it removes carbon buildup within cylinders, um, and it just helps with the overall lubrication of the vehicle to pr- to protect various components such as pistons, uh, cylinder heads, and kind of all the things that make your car go. And what I like to do, it's about $6 a can. I like to split the difference between the Costco gas and the Chevron gas by pouring a can of seafoam in, in each time I fill up. And what that does is it uh, slowly removes gum, sludge, varnish, and other carbon deposits, as previously mentioned. But it flushes those out of the system. Um, there's some great videos on YouTube by Scotty Kilmore, Chris Fix, on what seafoam does. Uh and to be honest with you all, there's about seven or eight oil refineries throughout the U.S. that create 87 and 92 octane, or they create regular and premium gases. And the federal government actually has to, they have laws in place where they there's a minimum of six required fuel additives. Um, and then Chevron and Shell, the reason why their gas is more expensive is they add six more but when you look at Seafoam, it's strictly additives. So you're getting twice the amount of additives, or you're just you're getting a, an enormous amount of additives. So, put the Seafoam in, find the cheapest gas possible, use Gas Buddy, an amazing app for finding the cheapest gas in your area. That's what I recommend if you're looking from a, from an economical and mechanical perspective.
2: And just so you know, we're not sponsored. We're not being told to say this.
1: We wish we were sponsored, but that would definitely make things a little bit different. Uh, so Film, if you're listening to this, or Shell and Chevron, <laughs> reach out. Is unlike-
2: Even though we just said not to go to Shell and Chevron.
1: We, we said not to, but we could potentially change our minds here. I mean, I'm swayed with gas with uh, gift cards and other forms of gas credits. So <laughs> um, Shell, Chevron, feel free to reach out. Yeah, so we answered gas. We talked about turbochargers and superchargers. We talked about oil, Lewis's Guide to Oil Changes, um, Amazon. And if you look at kind of Walmart and other places that sell oil online, I have a, we have a wonderful mechanic in the West Seattle area that we go to. I'm not going to say his name or kind of sponsor him, but he's a great guy. And he'll let us bring parts to him. So we'll bring oil filters and all that good stuff. Um, and it saves us, it saves a lot of money if you can go that route with synthetic oil, but those are kind of our three tips. So to summarize synthetic oil, find the cheapest gas with seafoam and turbocharger and supercharger engines are, they quote hit on a whole different level. You'll be blown away. Um, Merrick, Sagey, you guys want to take over as we start to wrap things up? What do we got?
0: I think that's about it for me. I think we answered some great questions here. Sage, you're, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's, that's it for me. I don't have anything else to add unless there's another question.
1: I think that, you know, we're, as we uh, we're here on episode three, of the break check podcast. So we appreciate everyone who's taking the time to listen with us. Um, stay tuned for next week. We're going to talk about supercars and kind of, dream cars and as well as certain tickets. Um, I've received one ticket in my lifetime, but last week in Colorado, um, we got pulled over and that was a different story there. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening to us. We're break check. And we just cannot say enough much. We appreciate you taking the time to rate review and share our podcast. And like always myself, American Sage, you were available uh, we'll link our, we'll link our emails down below for, to give you the chance to ask uh, frequently asked questions as well as any question that you'd like to have answered on the show. So with that being said, thank you for listening. Uh, one of my, one of the favorite people I like listening to on Apple podcast, she says, may you always be joy, joyful living and above all else. I think something like fearless, it's a little cliche. So we're going to figure out our own ending here, but we hope that you stay well within these next few weeks. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye.